and particularly a male writer, he says you have to write with your cock. That's that's that that's his advice. And I think what he's really saying is listen to your body. Want to listen to this Ivory Tower Boiler Room or True Crime in Academia episode ad free? Head on over to our Patreon, p a t r e o n dot com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room to listen to all of our podcast episodes without any ads. You get access to our video episodes, our bonus episodes, and even more exclusive content, including merchandise. It only starts at five dollars a month, so head on over to our Patreon. Again, it's p a t r e o n dot com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room. And while you're at it, you know what would be such a help is if you could rate and review the Ivory Tower Boiler Room on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and make sure that you follow us and share out our podcast to all of your friends. It truly does help, and I want to thank you all. It means so much that you're listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I hope that you enjoy this episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I'm really excited. This is now the second. Australian interview that I get to do. So it is my early evening and my guests early morning. Uh, so I'm so happy to make this work. Uh, we've already been gushing about Stuart Barnes, who if you haven't listened to his episode, it is out when this interview comes out. So listen back to it. I'm joined with Nigel Featherstone. First, I just love his last name. It's like very proper, um, <laughs> as if it's a very professorial title. Uh, yeah. So Nigel is, as I said, an Australian writer. He has published widely. We are going to be talking mostly about his newest novel. It's called My Heart is a Little Wild Thing. It's out now from Ultimo Press. And his other novel is called Bodies of Men, and it's classified as a war novel. So we'll definitely touch upon it because we've done a little uh, war discussions with writers before. So I want to bring that queer-themed aspect into it, Nigel. Um, that was published by, we got the name right, Hache <laughs> Australia in 2019. It was long-listed for the 2020 ARA Historical Novel Prize, shortlisted for the 2020 ACT Book of the Year, shortlisted in the 2019 Queensland Literary Awards, and received a 2019 Canberra Critics Circle Awards. So it's very widely received and awarded. So I'm so excited to be joined with you, Nigel, and just have this conversation. It's so wonderful to, to be here and lovely to see you, Andrew. Yes, yes. So, well, first, I'm just curious, where in Australia, like what region are you uh, coming to me from? So technically uh, coming from New South Wales, so our big, big city is Sydney, but mostly I live in a regional town called Goulburn, which is about two and a half hours south of um, Sydney, at, um, a town of about 20,000 people, but it's actually only 80 kilometres north of Canberra, the, the national capital. And so the ACT, the Australian Capital Territory, is like this little island 
that is surrounded by New South Wales. And so most of my week I spend crossing that border, I actually go between New South Wales into the ACT and back out again. So I kind of, I live officially in New South Wales, but I spend a lot of time in the national capital. Yeah, well, and I've been saying to you, Stuart, uh, Lindsay Tuggle, who everyone out there, she's going to be an upcoming interview. Uh, she's a poet and I knew her first as a Whitman scholar. And well, she is a Whitman scholar, but she's a poet as well. And I'm so naive with Australia. Basically, I think of Sydney, the Sydney Opera House, the Olympics. Um, but then because of that movie, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, that's basically <laughs> my queer knowledge of Australia. And because wait, there's Sydney and then there's another very, the beach city or one that's like right by the water. Maybe what am I, I'm trying to think. What's so the, Sydney, Sydney is right on the harbour. It's got the, the the harbour, but also then it's got Bondi, which is the the famous Sydney beach, and that's really part of part of Sydney. And then Melbourne is in Victoria, down on the south side. But anyone for me, like I grew up in Sydney, and there's a big rivalry between Sydney and Melbourne. So as a, essentially a Sydney sider, I always think Melbourne is you know nothing. Melbourne, but then again, yes, yes. <laughs> you know Sydney's got the the Mardi Gras and has had the Mardi Gras since 1978. Um, it's it's that's that's queer central for Sydney, and a, and a little fun fact: when I first watched Priscilla and um, absolutely adored it, of course, I kid you not, I was I was watching that movie, and right at the beginning, there's a little protest scene, and there's a guy with a megaphone talking. That is my family doctor. Oh wow! Okay, so everyone, Pure we have to rewatch Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. <laughs> Pure comments that he's now he's now died, but um, he was a family doctor um, for you know for twenty or thirty years, and I remember thinking, "That's Doctor Lucas." And then I said to my now late mother, "What would that have been, Doctor Lucas?" And she and she said, "Oh yeah, yeah, he was a, a, an amateur, um, an actor, so that would have been him." <laughs> so how bizarre! Well, and how large is Sydney, like population wise? Oh, I think it's up to about well, it's only about five or maybe six, maybe. Oh, look, I don't know, seven or eight million. Um, okay, so, so it's not, on a New York City, like Manhattan, Brooklyn scale. It's it's our big, big city and it sprawls a long, long way. I think the newest suburb from the centre of Sydney is now 80 kilometres out of the city it's it's a it's a sprawling metropolis so yeah i'm such and a new for, york based person so everything yes. is always is it like manhattan even when i was in san francisco for the first time i was always thinking is this like manhattan well it's, it's funny you know and when i when i have traveled and gone to other big cities i've been to new york state but i've never actually been to new york city but when i have been to other cities i think okay this is these are big cities but in in the time since you know i think sydney was only like two million when i was growing up it's certainly quadrupled and it's it's um it's it's and there's no way i could drive in sydney anymore i always catch the train just because it's it's too much. So yeah, well, some this artistic energy is bringing me to Australia. I'll be ready for it. Um, you should, you should. I love flights too, so actually that won't be the problem. You uh, should come out for for a Mardi Gras so and enjoy that. Yeah, when is um the Mardi Gras? It, it's in March. It's in the beginning oh, of March. Okay, I have yeah. time. I can plan this. <laughs> you uh, can plan. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So what I'm so curious about, Nigel, is how you got into creative writing was this something that you had always growing up thought i'm going to be a writer or did this come through another career pathway um 
you know, how does this enter into your journey? So, yeah, interesting question. And I think it's probably the answer is both of those. Um, I certainly loved reading when I was a child. I'm a mother. I've got two older brothers and and she would always take us to the local library. You know, she would make us a little uh, a little uh, library bag with our name sort of stitched into it. And we'd go every month to the local library and that would be our reading for the next month. Um, and she was also a bookseller. And so reading was very important from a very young age. And I think that, um, you know, I still, even now with you asking me that question, I still get that sort of body memory of choosing the books that I'd read for the next month and then going home and opening the book. And, you know, because that was basically our entertainment. You know, there was television and radio, of course, but at night it would always be, where's where's my book at? You know, where I'm at with this story. Um and then, and then I have um, my father, now late father, was a, was a painter. I was a visual artist, and I also had a a queer um, a poet in my family, someone called Dorothy Porter, and she. So even though I had my, but I, even though I had sort of Dorothy was the eldest cousin, and and she's now um, she sadly died of breast cancer at the age of fifty four. But um, even though I had my father and and Dorothy in my life and wanting to be a writer it was always that kind of middle class thing of well you can't be a writer though can you Mm. so I it was the only thing that I was good at as a kid um I clearly remember being in about being about 16 and 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 I was moved from the average English class to an advanced English class the only time that ever happened in my whole schooling and I wrote this story and I thought, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, I've impressed my new English teacher. And then when he was handing out the marks, he put it back on, you know, on my little desk, student desk, and he said, you can do better than that. And I went, well, next story, I'm going to blitz you then. I am going to impress you. <laughs> and yeah, and I, and I actually wrote, age 16, I wrote a, 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 a war short story about two boys who in their little town um, all the men go off to war and these two boys have to grow up to, to become men, you know, in because the, they're not old enough to go to war. But when the men come back, they're all completely lost because they're now old, but they no longer have all these, you know, mature things to do. And anyway, Andrew, I remember going, I've, I've, I've worked on it, I've worked on it, I've worked on it, I've worked on it. And um, funny enough, I wrote the whole story to the bride's head revisited soundtrack the old bbc the original bbc version and um and i remember the teacher still remember his name peter godsby smith he was handing and i got 17 and a half out of 20 and he was handing out all the other assignments and marks and he was going 16 15 you know 17 you know i went no i'm still better i'm still better still better and he got to the last kid and he went 18 to this other kid and I remember thinking, oh, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't get there. I didn't get the, you know, the best mark. And then, and then this kid got up because he could read his story. And it was a complete ripoff of a children's story I'd had at home. Com- complete yeah. ripoff. It was just, it was a complete plagiarism. And I remember thinking there as a, as a 16 year old, I thought I've got two choices. I could put up my hand and say, he's got a better mark, but he ripped off. And I'll sound really sour and bitter or I'll just sit with that news and know that I did the best. 
um, anyway. And I well, thought, and it's that ingenuity, right? I mean, you were doing original work. Uh, I remember yeah. even when I was in an AP English class, I was um, questioning the, actually, I think she was the, she wasn't the valedictorian, but she was up there in our class. And she went to UPenn and she was complaining about an essay in our English course. And I like actually said to her, you're going to University of Pennsylvania. You should be getting used to writing. Like this is something. But then I started to realize, oh, sometimes the highest achieving marks or the highest achieving grades of a student doesn't necessarily mean they're passionate about the subject. No, no, indeed. They've just got a particular way of thinking that that might sort of fit another particular way of thinking maybe. And so, I, and interesting enough, and, and this sort of story has a bit of a coda, uh, you know, I'd go on to write short stories and get them published in literary Australian literary journals. And I, I'd had my first novel published by then. And I was walking up the, the big main avenue in Canberra. And this is, I'm not making a word of this up. This is, this is maybe... 20 or 30 years later and I was walking up where there was a hotel and there was a hotel foyer and there was a sandwich board and clearly there was some kind of conference was on and I was just walking along and there was two guys talking on the street on the footpath and I went that's my English teacher that's Peter Goldsby Smith I'm sure it is and I kept walking and I went no 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 do it do a Yui and and say something to this to to him and I said I'm so sorry for interrupting your conversation but Peter I don't really remember me my name's Nigel Featherstone I was once your English teacher and you know you once told me I could do better and I did do better but more to the point I'm now a published writer and he smiled his face lit up and he said well you know good on you and I knew you would one day do it and um so it was just um it was just I think I think in a way Andrew what I'm still doing 40 years after that that event at school, I'm still just trying to impress people. I'm still just trying to write in a way that will move people and maybe the maybe just move people. That's what I'm I'm just still I'm still that kid who just wants to do better and move people. And I always when I talk to writers, especially um fictional writers i find yeah. even if poets fiction writers i think nonfiction it's a little different sometimes like that's where i see a similarity to academic writers but yeah with creative writers i find that the stereotype from the public is more of that bookworm like even myself like where i've arrived now and having this conversation with you my mom always took me to the library once a week as well so i really bond yep. with you over that and yeah like i still love the aesthetic of a library and just yes in my home well my hometown i'll always go and visit their library when i go see my family but here on long island i have just such a community there and there's the library magazines and like what's the newest books that are coming out and you see all of the new fiction and non-fiction and I just love making my way through even they have record players you can rent at the library here wow. um, yeah. so they have a 3d printer I mean it's just so interesting to see where libraries all the activities and movies it's such a cultural center and what I find interesting, though, is when I was younger, I was a very more introspective, introverted reader. Yeah. Now I'm extroverted, but still have that literary thirst. Wonderful. Um, 
But there's something about when you're with a book, even when it's an audio book, there's something about that solitude and introspectiveness of learning through the characterization and what that author has created um, that I always want to ask, like, do you feel, Nigel, that you would describe yourself in a very more introverted way? Like, are you that introverted writer, reader, or are you able to be um, an exuberant, extroverted person while still being able to write? Like, do you have to kind of tune out certain noise when you're in that writing process? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the reasons why I love living in re regional Australia is that it's it's so it's 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 so quiet. There's where I live, um, there's there's actually no literary community, but what's amazing is just an hour down the road is a massive reading community. It's 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 quite extraordinary. Um, and also I can be an absolute hermit and I'm sort of someone, and maybe when I was younger, I, I, I would be embarrassed to say this, but I'm, I'm the sort of person who for every hour of socializing, I need nine hours to not socialize. And in the past, I think, what's wrong with me? Why do I have to be so introverted? And, and, um, and, and I, I just love it. I just love being in, in, in the house. I just, I love re writing and love reading. I love, you know, I've got chickens in the backyard and, and I love walking in the bush and, and and I'm just very happy doing that. And I, I love then coming to to, to um, Canberra and um, socialising. And I'll do all that stuff. You know, last year for my hardest little wild thing, I was a literary festival, and I was I was on I was on a panel with two very successful Australian authors, much more successful than me. One of them, Trent Dalton, who's probably the most successful writer right now. Hi, this is Dr. Andrew Rimby, and I'm so excited to shout out the Gay and Lesbian Review, who is helping to sponsor the ITBR podcast. For all of you out there, the Gay and Lesbian Review is a bi-monthly magazine where you can discover new things about gay and lesbian literature, history, and culture. And the GL Review publishes essays in a wide range of disciplines, as well as a slew of reviews of books, plays, and movies, and a number of special features, such as artist profiles and their popular art memo column. Each issue of the magazine brings you consistently intelligent, lively, thought-provoking articles focused on a unifying theme. For example, their September-October issue centers on the theme, Cracking the Closet. So, starting in the 19th century, a number of artists and writers found ways to crack the closet by expressing their sexuality between the lines or in the interstices of their work. For example, Ignacio Darnad, who is a friend of the ITBR podcast, he's been on our show, writes all about illustrator J.C. Leyendecker, whose work for Ivory Soap and Arrow Collars gave him plenty of opportunities to draw pictures of well-dressed and at times scantily dressed American men. And you also can find an article by Vernon Rosario, who has been on the podcast, and he talks about the quest for sex in the Middle Ages. So to subscribe, visit glreview.org, that's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org. Click subscribe. So on their website, go all the way over to the right-hand side, and you'll see the button subscribe. Click subscribe and enter the promo code ITBR50 because you're getting 50% off your subscription to the print or digital edition of the Gay and Lesbian Review magazine. 
I can't wait for you all to have your copy of the Gay and Lesbian Review magazine and make sure that you take a picture when your magazine arrives or when you're reading it online and tag the GL Review on Instagram and ITBR and we'll share it out in our stories. Enjoy your reading, everyone. And and the audience must have been in its thousands. There must have been two or three thousand people. Wow. That was a double marquee, and it was just a sea of people. Wait, and sorry, I'm so naive. What is his name? Trent Dalton. Trent Dalton. Okay. What yeah. what would be like the one of the works that you would recommend by Trent Dalton? Uh so um it would be um Boy Swallows Universe. Mm. Okay. Um and it's being turned into a television series at the moment. It's been on the stage and all this kind of thing. And 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 it, and he's got a bit of he's a lovely guy. He's a very very lovely, generous human being. Um, but he's got a bit of rock star swagger. You know, he's <laughs> he, when he was walking through the crowd. You know, he really was engaging people and you know giving them you know thumbs up and high fives and all this kind of stuff. But a very lovely guy. And I remember I really enjoyed the conversation. It was very vibrant and very funny and irreverent and. Um, but afterwards I, I needed a full week just to go home and just, and not, not because it was challenging. It was quite the opposite. It was actually the most enjoyable thing, you know, I, I'd done all last year, but when I got home, I just thought, okay, that's a, that's a, that's a week's worth of me not talking to anyone. And even if like, you know, so you have to get the plumber around to fix something, you know, it's really irritating that I have to talk to the plumber. And, and, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm a bit, I'm, I'm very much that real, introvert but i think with reading and particularly literature for me in particularly in this era we're in now i just like to be disconnected from all the stuff and all the noise and just be in the world of the novel that's that's and it's not that i'm hiding from the real world i'm just engaged in the real world of the novel so it's not escapism to me and i read i read literature so it's then connecting me to some kind of truth which is what i'm you know, really want. But I, th I think I still am just that kid who just wants to know the characters and be interested in their lives and what happens to them. Yeah, well, and with your work, something like with Bodies of Men, like we have two different tones, right? Bodies of Men with genres and your themes that you have this quote unquote, a war novel yeah. But with Bodies of Men, where my heart is a little wild thing is more of processing one's journey through familial strife, familial deterioration in a way, trying to get on the other side. Um, so with Bodies of Men, I mean, just having the term body and men in the title <laughs> really mm -hmm. brings to mind this male male warrior bonding culture and like that's where i had on zach topping who wrote wake of war which is a dystopian war novel um very military-esque which was very interesting but i'm curious like why did you go like you've already said you written you wrote a war short story but like how did you know okay now i have to go into a war novel like what was that inspiration behind that whole theme in Bodies of Men? So 
So there's a couple of layers. There's a really pragmatic layer, which I'll start with. And, and, and a friend just sent me a link and all the, and another late friend, but he was an academic at Australian National University. And he just sent me this link saying, you should apply for this. And I clicked on the link and it was a residency at the University of New South Wales. And they have a um, campus in, the, in Canberra. And the Canberra campus is also the Australian Defence Force Academy. So everybody at that university in terms of undergraduates are all men and women in uniform. Um, so they're essentially on their way to becoming officers, but they get degrees through this university. And they had this write-in residency uh, program. And I just thought, why, why would I spend three months at a Defence Force Academy? So I dismissed it outright. But Andrew, because I'm, I'm, I, I'm generally quite a... Um, a disciplined person and so I write every day I'm at the desk every day and if I finish at 3 8 p.m I'll think well I'll have to do something else to 5 p.m because that's when I finish so and then I thought well I'll just click on that link again and then I realized that this residency at the university came with a quite a large sum of money so I thought well maybe I should actually have a think about this and then I just started filling in the application just as an exercise not I wasn't going to apply I just thought well what would I study and I I thought I will study um different expressions of masculinity under extreme military pressure so i then i thought oh now i'm really excited about this i ended up pressing the submit button and then lo and behold six months later i got the phone call to say i'd got this residency and then six months after that i was at this campus surrounded by men and women in uniform i had an office in the library everyone there is in whether they're in the, the air force or the navy or the army they're all studying in the library you go to the cafe and you know you're in a queue getting your, your cappuccino with men and women in uniform and i remember thinking this was my original gut instincts was right this was a very bad idea because i have no interest and so i was i was walking up and down the aisles in in the library just pulling out all these books about you know machine guns and tanks and vietnam war and all these things and i was going oh none of it means anything to me and there were two um books that almost fell off the stacks and one was called deserter by charles glass who i think is he's a an american um non-fiction writer isn't he and it and it it tracked three soldiers two marines and one uk soldier in the second world war who deserted for various reasons and one of them ended up becoming quite a well-known poet. And I thought, this I'm really fascinated by this. And I'm really fascinated by sometimes these young soldiers could serve if their commanding officer was a father figure. But then if their commanding officer was a nasty piece of work, they just wouldn't, they just wouldn't do anything for them. One of the soldiers could work for the French underground couldn't work for the u.s army so when he when he was told by the u.s uh, by the french underground he had to go back to the u.s army he actually walked himself into the nearest u.s military jail because he simply refused so he could blow up bridges but he couldn't kill anyone so all this stuff was going through my head and i thought okay now i'm interested and then i read a and you you potentially love this story the context is in Australia, we have this very political military history where it's completely blown out of proportion. You've probably heard of Gallipoli and, and the Anzac spirit, and most of it is myth. When academics really dig into it, it's mostly myth-making, and Australian politicians of all stripes, so to speak, have used it for political purposes. But when you dig into these things, it's just mostly not true. So there was this book called Bad Characters, which won a significant um, historical uh nonfiction prize 
Mm. And it's called bad characters because what this um, academic does is he's went into a hundred Australian soldiers where their um, file is marked character bad because it might have been through while they were serving through theft or um, through being drunken or through desertion or some sort of sexual stuff. And there was one paragraph in this book and it talked about a Scottish guy who at the beginning of the First World War, he was in Melbourne, Australian city of Melbourne, and the First World War broke out and he went, well, I'll volunteer for the Australian Army because he could. Um, he then uh, was sent to Gallipoli, which was where, you know, it's talked about as our great defining moment, but it was a massive defeat. He survived Gallipoli and then he was sent to Europe to, to continue serving during the First World War. And on Christmas Day, he was invited by an English captain to have lunch with him. And some of the other guests later found them having sex. Oh. And, and he was then court-martialed and he was found guilty. And he was the charge was to turn up to a particular pier in Europe and then be sent on the first boat back home where he would spend 30 years in an Australian military jail. And, and wait, I and never... the charge was sodomy? Is that what yeah. they charged him with? Yeah. Oh. yeah. Mm. And he was, he, the trail finishes, he never turned up to that wharf. He never got on the boat. He obviously just thought, I'm not going to do that. Why would I, why would I go back? And so he disappeared. So did he, did he and this captain, English captain sort of hook up or did he just live the rest of his life in Europe? But he never came back to Australia. He just thought this, I'm not doing this. But that court martial um, trial was held on some, some Valentine's Day. So on Christmas Day, gets caught having sex with a guy and then his court martial is on Valentine's Day, then disappears. And then I thought, okay, I've got my story. I know what I'm writing about. I'm writing about a deserter and I'm writing about this guy who gets caught doing this stuff. And then my story then moved into the Second World War and then it sort of moved from there. And that's why in Bodies of Men, I've got two storylines. One, uh, a young um, effeminate guy who's actually very good in the war, but he he deserts on, on purpose. And then I've got another um, guy, a young officer, who actually is hopeless in the war and then they they meet up. So sorry, that was a very long-winded sort of answer to this from this, you know, just getting a link from an academic saying, you should do this. And I go, why would I do this? And so far, Bodies of Men has turned out to be my sort of most successful novel. Well, and with all those awards, I mean, there's a testament of how much it's been received by the literary community and the public abroad. I, so what I am curious about is because you did spend, it sounds like, a lot of time with those in the military or at least yep. had conversations how what is the feeling or the pulse right now of sexuality in the military does it feel this is something i asked zach because he had served um zach topping is straight but uh he was all for all my questions and antics um especially he was in the army so um he's an army veteran and I was like curious from that vantage point, but what was it like for you not being in the military, but them knowing about the kind of work or book you were going to be producing? Well, I think um, 
what what's what's sort of interesting is that that academic who wrote that book called um, Peter Stanley, and, and again, I, I kid you not, I was just you know right. I was, so I was there for three months, and and I started working on the story, and a couple of weeks into the residency, I just got this email. And the email, the head, headline was just hello. And then and then the text said, hi, Nigel, just, just thought I want to say welcome to the campus. Um, if you've got any questions, just let me know. I'm here and available. And um, and then I looked down the bottom and it was Dr. Peter Stanley, the guy who'd written the book. Like oh. I didn't know I didn't know he was a an academic on campus. I had no idea. He could have been an academic all around the world. His, his, his office was just down the corridor. So then I walked down, I go, hello, I've just got your your email i've just read your book and so well, let's go and have a conversation and he was absolutely fascinated by what i was writing about mm-hmm. um so he was absolutely um he was absolutely encouraging he'd also spent 30 years as the chief military historian for the australian war memorial so he said the more that we go into these sort of spaces through fiction um he you know he said that the better off we are and then he connected me to other academics there's an academic in Queensland called Dr Yorick Small who had done his PhD in oh here's another story that we might find awkward but I think it's really interesting he was his PhD was on young men in Brisbane in Queensland during the second world war who made the most of when the US um, army were briefly based in Brisbane and there was a thing called the Brisbane line which is where they thought that um, Japan would be able to get halfway down Australia and Brisbane was that line so the American army was over the US army was over here in Brisbane and but there was a lot of these young men were thinking we can make we can make a lot of you know take a lot of advantage of this so there were these very small underground almost literally in some cases literally cafes and bars where young Australian Brisbane men were meeting up and hooking up with um, uh, Marines. And so Dr. Yorick Small's PhD was about that that culture that developed very briefly. Mm. But apparently the culture was that um, the Australian men had to be bottoms while the US Marines had to be tops. Oh, well... I wouldn't have been That's a U.S. It. Marine. Let's just say it that way. Uh, <laughs> maybe I'd be in the Navy. Uh, no, <laughs> giving the Navy more of a stereotype. Um, but so, and, you and, know, and I, th- I think what's what I think the bigger context. So there's a political context for bodies of men, and there's also this societal thing because in Australia we do have this. Uh, the, the, and maybe it's the same everywhere, but this the typical Australian man is is a white man for a start, is a young man, is a white surfer or a right uh, a white rugby player, and very extreme toxic, um, really, really toxic masculinity. And so I, I I can't answer the question what it's like to be gay in the Australian army, but there are certainly plenty of books that that explore what that's like and how it's still a, a, a difficult thing. Maybe there's been some changes in the last 10 years. Um, so for me, what I was trying to say with Bodies of Men in a very subtle way is that we have this myth called Anzac to say this is what an Australian man is like. And what I was saying is... Well, there's plenty of other ways to express that. And we know this is true. We know that gay men actually served in the Second World War because, you know, some of them just are still alive and they've shared their experiences. 
And this is why at the end of the novel, the very last line is um, William says, in Alexandria, I was more of a man than I've ever been in my life. And that's because he'd had sex with a man. Ah, well, thank you for all of that, Nigel. Uh, so bodies of men out everywhere uh, for all of you listening. Um, so to pivot and turn to my heart is a little wild thing. Like yeah. at first, I just want to read the first sentence to everyone um, because it really just gives us a taste of what's to come and how full throttle you take your narrative. Like you're not afraid to give the plot away. Uh, so, I mean, it begins first, it's part one. Um, and it begins the day after I tried to kill my mother, I tossed some clothes, a pair of hiking boots, a baseball cap, and a few toiletries into my backpack and left at dawn. So, you know, knowing that we're in the mind of this main character who has tried to kill his mother and is fleeing is unsettling. Um, it is. And, you know, what was, did the beginning come first to you? Did you know this is where you needed to start or did you have to write around it before it appeared? All, all, all great questions. And and I and I should sort of start by saying that I'm a I'm a rewriter as many novelists are. And so I did 40 drafts of Bodies of Men. There are 30 37 in my computer and we did another three when it was acquired by Hachette. Um, and and toward around about draft 32, 33, I actually had a physical collapse, literally fell on the ground. And it was almost like I'd, you know, been drinking for a, a week or I was having a stroke or a heart attack. I I couldn't, I couldn't talk, I couldn't stand up. It was, it was like it was a drug overdose, and it was just from sheer exhaustion and stress. Um, and I was so determined to write this book, and I'd I'd had, you know, more public funding, and I was just very, 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 very determined. And um so when it came to starting to write another novel, and, and my publisher Robert Watkins, who's the only gay male publisher in Australia, so he's published both these these two latest novels, but with different publishers. But I've stayed with him, and he he said, "Nigel, don't don't leave it too long after Bodies of Men. Just start writing something new sooner rather than later." So I was working on this novel. If if Bodies of Men is my war novel, I wanted to write a nature novel, something is about that the more we destroy the environment, the more we're destroying ourselves. Mm. And I just, Andrew, I just couldn't, couldn't get it. I couldn't get the, you know, I'd finish a manuscript. I write everything by hand too. I write everything by pen on paper and I just couldn't get the words flowing. And I, I'd get to the end of a manuscript and I'd think, no, that's terrible. Then I came to a different version. I came to the end of a different version. I sent it to my literary agent and a couple of weeks later, she's very blunt, very helpful and, highly regarded and she said Nigel this just does not work um and then you know I try again and I try again and and then I and I I just had this idea of a man who'd been left behind you know I'm 55 I was coming out as a 15 year old in 1982 in 1983 New South Wales had a vote in the parliament to get rid of anti-gay laws, anti-sodomy laws. Um, what else happened in 1983, 84, AIDS? So it's just when I was coming out, um, these things were being discussed. And then, of course, at, at that time, you know, my fear as a schoolboy was even if I touched another guy, I would 
I would die, you know, a month later. So, and then in 2017, Australia eventually changed its marriage uh, marriage law to to include same sex couples. So, but there's huge changes in in the period of my life from being an outlaw. And I did go to a private school in Sydney, and, and and now I know that there were friends friends who were gay, but we would never talk about. It. There was no discussion. There was no none whatsoever. To the point now that there are gay marriages, and no one cares. You know, there's the the the, the women's um, World Cup final is on at the moment, and Australia, the Matildas have done very well. The captain is a lesbian woman. It, no one talks about it because it just doesn't matter, as it should be. <laughs> Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Andrew Rimby, and I am so excited to be talking about Broadview Press. You might be asking, what is Broadview Press, Andrew? Broadview is an independent academic publisher in the humanities that produces high-quality, pedagogically useful books for use in university and college classrooms. They publish in the humanities mainly English studies, writing, philosophy, and history, just to name a few genres. And recently, I had on Dr. Jason Holt, who wrote all about the philosophy of sport. And what better summer episode than to talk about what happens when a philosopher dissects the beautiful aesthetics of sporting culture. In the spring, I had on Drs. Kyle Stedman and Tanya Rodriguez to talk about what is sound writing, how to make audio projects in the college classroom, how to even have your students create podcasts. And then in the winter, I had on Dr. Dr. Jeffrey Weinstock. He talked about analyzing pop culture. Yes, I even sneak in some Real Housewives questions. And how to teach composition and make it fun. He uses this whole metaphor about being a mad scientist in this gothic lab. And in the fall, I had on Dr. Ann Stevens, and she talked about literary theory and criticism. And yes, the university season is upon us. So. What better way to talk about the college classroom than to actually understand what is literary theory? That's a wonderful episode for all of you out there who teach literary studies. I love Broadview Press. Make sure you use their exclusive code. It's Ivory Tower on broadviewpress.com. You get 20% off all, all Broadview Press publications. Okay, until the next Broadview Press interview. And now back to the Ivory Tower boiler room. Um, and, uh, so I just wanted to write about a man a bit older than me who'd been left behind and, um, and in a way is living quite an old fashioned life. And he's, he's, he's caring for his mother. He's never felt that he could come out and he's completely left behind. And, um, uh, a couple of things happened. I ended up getting, um, asking because it's set on this, in this part of New South Wales, and the southern of the state, which is around our snow country. I know people don't sort of think Australia has a snow country, but we do. And it's a place called the Monero, which is is naturally barren. It's just, it's like a moonscape. There's just nothing there. And then mountains with snow on them. And I stayed in a in a barn it, on the property for a week. And but I had a version of the manuscript. And when I got there, I thought I was going to edit the previous version of the manuscript. And when I got there, I went, I, I just I'm just not interested. Even as the writer, I'm not interested. And while I was there, I thought, if I was 
sitting on the steps of this barn with a glass of wine and there was a man over there planting trees, I would just say, can I just spend a week planting trees with you? And then I thought, hang about, what's going on there? Drove three hours back to my home. When on that drive, everything came to me in terms of the story. Got back to my desk, went, great. Okay, I know what I'm doing now. Draft number 12 or whatever, reinvent the whole thing. Sat down with my pad, wrote about two or three pages and went, no, it's gone again. No energy, it's all gone. And I thought, I can't, I can't let this go. I can't let this story go. Turned the, so I just, I can show you this, Andrew. Actually, she's not with me, but I could see, you know, take a photo of it for you. I then just drew a line through all those pages. I went, rubbish, 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 rubbish. Turn over the page and just went, turn it to first person and just start somewhere. And I wrote the day after I tried to kill my mother, I, you know, packed my clothes and left at dawn. Two weeks later, I had the manuscript. Wow. And that was after that, that was after about three years of trying. And and you know, a lot of writers, as you probably heard, talk about sort of heat, the heat on the page or the heat in their fingers when they're typing or writing with a pen. And it just flew from there. And it was interesting because of, during the writing of what would become the final version, I had a residency with a wonderful Australian novelist called Charlotte Wood. And She's written an incredible book called um, The Natural Way of Things, which is about Australian misogyny in Australia. And halfway through this residency, I said to Charlotte, I'm really concerned about the violence of that opening line, the day after I tried to kill my mother, you know, I left at dawn. And she said, what are you going to do about it? And I said, well, I think I'm going to soften it. And she goes, well, what, how are you going to soften it? And I said, how about this? She goes, well, what other options have you got? And I said, what about this? She goes, Nigel, both of those are terrible. And she said, did the prose flow from that opening sentence or not? And I said, it does, but I'm going to be crucified. She goes, you're just going to have to level up and cope with it. So it, it is a it is a problematic opening sentence, but I hope that readers end up finding about out, out what Patrick is actually talking about. And I don't think it's spoiling the story to say he has not killed his mother but in a very sort of metaphysical sense, what is he doing? In a way, he's actually, because his mother has always held him back. His mother's also dementing. So in a way, at the end, he's saying, you know, I loved you and you love me, but I need to let you go and you need to go um, so I can find myself. So it's a, it's a, it's a symbolic killing of his mother, not a, a, a literal by, by any sense. And, um, yeah. and that, well, I that's how it came about. Well, I feel that energy you're describing of how quickly the writing process can happen. But when you're you really need that, it's almost an energy transference or a shifting of awareness. Like it's been such a blockage, but then you really finally figure out what you're saying and what needs to be on the page with the passion, the motivation behind your words, like half, no, maybe even two thirds of my dissertation was written in the last two months before my defense. Like it just right. came and yes. came and came. I mean, yes, was maybe that the deadline? It could have been a deadline, but I think it was also just knowing now that I had my voice. Like for me, it was getting out all of the, um, critiques in my mind of self-critiquing myself or thinking yeah. like what you were thinking that how the public was going to judge me or the academic community might have judged 
what my argument is. And then I just had to trust my instinct of no, but this is taking ownership. Like, this is my argument. Like, this is what I want to say, you know, yeah. and I, let it be polemical, you know. That, that, that's right. And I think that that's what Charlotte was Charlotte Wood was talking about. If you get heat, and it's like any artist, if they're sitting down to, to, to do a particular painting or to write a piece of music, you know, what really gets that music actually, you know, flowing and what, what makes that painting actually what makes that paint go on the canvas better than any other paint? And um, and Charlotte's actually done a PhD on the way artists work, and she wanted to know whether all artists have some common processes, and she discovered nine, and one of them is called called heat. But um, I, I, I'm discovering that writing, I used to think writing was a head thing, but now it's a whole of body thing, and we have to, I feel, I have to listen to my whole body and, and, and excuse the sort of vulgarity of this, but there's a wonderful gay Greek um, writer in Australia you may have heard, called, heard of called Christos Chalkas, and I thoroughly recommend him to readers. And he's a few years younger than me, and I'm actually going to be interviewing him for this uh, at the Australian National University in a couple of years, a couple of months about his new novel. And, I mean, he's one of these people who's the most gentle and a gentleman, tender, thoughtful, delightful human being on the page, his perhaps his most um, famous novel is called The Slap. But he 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 says when he's working with another writer, he says, you, in particular a male writer, he says you have to write with your cock. That's that's that that's his advice. And I think what he's really saying is listen to your body. And yes. you know, if in your head you're going, I need to craft a perfect sentence to get this novel, it will probably never happen. But something happened when I wrote that on the page, then the next sentence came and the next sentence came. And it's interesting you're talking about an energy sort of transference because, as you probably know, George Saunders talks about exactly that. All we're doing as writers is creating energy in one sentence, transferring that to the next sentence. And, and when Saunders talks about it, you think it makes so much sense. Try doing it. It's actually quite difficult. But I, I love what Chalkers is saying, and I think that it's always a reminder, and a, particularly people like me of a particular era where we've been told to turn our bodies off, and I think particularly gay men who've been told to turn their bodies off, and the shame that comes from growing up in an era where we could not pursue what our desires were, I think that transfers into thinking, well, there's things that I can't feel or say in terms of my writing. <laughs> Hi, everyone. This is Andrew, and I am interrupting what I know is such an exciting Ivory Tower Boiler Room episode to tell you all about one of my favorite podcasts. It's called That Old Gay Classic Cinema, and it's hosted by Christian Garcia. Christian is joined with guest co-hosts to talk about classic cinema films that we know and love, and he analyzes them through a queer lens. So, He's talked about The Sound of Music, Alfred Hitchcock, The Wizard of Oz, Sleeping Beauty, 101 Dalmatians, and recently, Hello, Dolly. I actually was on his first ever episode to talk about my love of The Sound of Music and playing Captain Von Trapp in my high school musical. Then I was joined with Mary DePippi, the host of True Crime in Academia, and our friend Travis Roundtree to talk about Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. Mary just had Christian on True Crime and Academia to talk about 
female poisoners, including the evil queen from Snow White and actual real life female poisoners. So Christian's podcast is the best. You must add it to your listen list. After you listen to this episode, make sure you head over to That Old Gay Classic Cinema on Apple and Spotify. Make sure you follow him on Instagram at That Old Gay Classic Cinema. And he's also on TikTok. Don't forget TikTok. Okay. I can't wait for you all to listen to That Old Gay Classic Cinema. And now back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. And I think also, Andrew, um, social media, I think, has castrated a lot of people, particularly men. And I'm by no means a meninist. I'm a feminist. I'm a progressive feminist. But I think it, a lot of writers I know have felt that they can't, like me, like, oh, I can't, I, I'm going to have to soften that line. I'm going to get crucified. But mm. I think you, and th there are things that, someone like me, a, a middle-class white Australian, should not and will never write about. But I think that we've also got to be, and that's what Chalkus is so great about, you know, he grew up as a migrant in Australia, as a, as a gay man, um, and he's, there's a, a, his first novel is called Loaded, which also was turned into an incredible film called Head On, and Loaded is very short it's almost like a novella but it packs a massive punch it's like this young greek man who's just going to shag his way through melbourne and have a great old time and take a lot of drugs um but i think christos has made a career out of saying things that people don't want to hear but he's also the most thoughtful respectful human being you're ever going to meet so um i forgot where we started with but i think that yeah a lot of it is about people like me from a Protestant background saying, I am going to listen to my whole body yeah. and see where well, that gets me. And I mean, definitely um, the right with your cock is going to leave a lot speculating. And um, like, I definitely could see where some feminist critics, like, I know though, like the way you've described it, it's not that patriarchal way of not at all. Like, it's the opposite, right? No, it's like there is something though. I've been thinking a lot about this with um fellow gay artists or just queer men in general, which is about how open we are. Like now, my generation, I feel we're starting to be more sexually open, even on social media, like showing yep. Um, our bodies or feeling yep. that we can be more erotic and owning it. But yeah, the public, I feel that the public reaction to when men eroticize their bodies is very different than when women eroticize their bodies. Mm. Cause like when, mm -hmm. when women are playing, when not playing, but when women are showing their bodies um, suggestively, it's usually assumed that it's for straight men. And like, that's, an okay mm -hmm. way of portraying sensuality but when men are eroticizing their own bodies the public thinks why would men want to sexually show off like because it's not for the straight male community but it's for you know other men or like even like women you know can now be sexually desirous of men it, like do you think about that of why there do you think there is a double standard or even um... I, I'm, 
I'm convinced yeah. of it. And you, or, you know, we just need to watch three movies and would find that, you know, there'd be a lot more naked female flesh than naked male flesh. And, and it's almost, you know, the, the hunky man will be just dressed well, but the, the, well, the sexy man will be dressed well, but the, the sexy woman will be undressed. And I've been reading Bell Hooks and I'm a bit late to Bell Hooks, but I've, I've read two of her um, nonfiction works recently. And, and, you know, she, she talks about, patriarchy equals male domination equals violence equals no love and i think what chalkus is actually doing would is actually sort of saying what what we're doing through using our bodies is actually attacking patriarchy we're actually saying you know straight men if you're going to dominate us and um, we're going to dominate you back through through our bodies and but I, you know I, i'm actually a very I, I think i'm politically well i am very progressive maybe in some elements a, a radical left but i'm actually quite a conservative a, a cautious human being you know yeah. and so i think a, a, you know saunders again talks about for him his characters are the better versions of himself for me my characters are the braver versions of myself and for bodies of men i split myself in two there's the effeminate side but there's also just a complete loser side that i just couldn't do anything put you know Put me in a difficult position i probably couldn't do anything but maybe put me in a different difficult a different difficult position and i could do something um and so with patrick in my heart is a little wild thing i created this character who is so constrained by his life he's doing a whole heap of things that you know i, I have never done and <laughs> i certainly had a lot of fun on the page um but i you know in person i'm actually quite cautious but um and i've been in with my partner tim for almost 28 years but so it's, it's as a writer yeah i'm just learning if i'm struggling with a sentence then say something that i shouldn't say and see what goes from there yeah i thought you were gonna say if i'm struggling as a writer i you know call up my partner and we go into the bedroom i'm like that could be a good release um but, i don't i don't yeah. I, I think that would just end with um, a glass of wine. I don't know whether it would end with uh, a, a good sentence on the page, but I know, um, yeah, it, it doesn't might not necessarily ground you uh, in that yeah. creative writing process. But you know, as we're at the end, I am just curious for my last question. Did you find, mm. you know, because I want everyone to get my heart is a little wild thing, and you know have read the beginning, but have left everyone out there in suspense, which is good. We want to leave them in a climactic edge of their seat moment. But was it is it harder for you to reconcile as a writer writing about familial drive struggle, um, you know, having Patrick's mother in this declining health state? Or was it harder to write about Patrick not really feeling authentically himself, especially when it comes to his sexual journey. So there are a couple of things that happened with my husband. Well, thing is, is my mother was dementing as, as my, my, my um, grandmother died of dementia as well. And, um, and so my mother had, had, had just died. And, um, and, it, and as, as a lots of men, I think, or lots of people, feel once their mothers have died their first question was is often who was she and now i can't ask her and i you know we we had challenges in our life but we were fully reconciled by the end and so part of the question was who was my mother and the second one was that my mother 
as much as she loved me and and she's been dead now for three years and and now I'm in a headspace of remembering all the incredible things that she did like sewing a library bag and always taking us to the mm -hmm. to the library which of course has had a massive impact on my life um and uh but she did say three things to me when I was when I was young one was um uh uh, she she wanted me to look after her. She said, "When I get old, and I'm the youngest, and I'm my I'm the, I'm the gay son, so I think she always said, well, you will look after me.' Secondly, ironically, therefore, but don't be gay. I don't want you to be gay. And thirdly, if you're going to be a writer, don't use your real name. You should be writing under a pseudonym because you embarrass me. So, and I think you know we're all complex, and I, and I, and I that's really I'm asking." how did we get to that position and why did she get to that position? So it's less judgmental than perhaps it might sound. It was me writing this novel and wanting to understand that. But Patrick is a completely different character to me. He's, you know, if he walked in through this door now, I'd know it's Patrick. It's, it's, he's, he's not me. Um, And so, so it was me processing all that. It was processing my mother's death through this novel, it was processing why she would say these things. But also, also, I didn't obey my mother. I've gone on to use my name, as you well know. I mm. did, you know, come out and and been with my partner for you know almost three decades. And my mother was actually very fond of Tim, and vice versa, I think. Um, and I didn't look after her. So um, you people might read this. Oh, Nigel was such a nice. Man, he always looked after his mother, but that wasn't that wasn't me. So I was asking that question: what What would have my life have been like if I had obeyed her? And that life is is Patrick's. Um, so it was difficult, and you know, it is a there is some autobiography in there, and that makes the process, I think, maybe not more challenging, but a different thing to do when you're writing about something that you're a bit close to. Um, what I what I just love when readers have contacted me where they've they've just said they've been on the journey with Patrick. They wanted him to 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 be himself by the end and he you know he he gets there ultimately. Um but it's a it's a nature novel and it and it was inspired by if if, if there's anything you like Marlon James talks about if you're ever struggling to write something, write about what makes you angry. And if there's something that makes me angry is to see forests being cleared. And Australia is one of the worst in the world at this. We make ourselves out to be great at so many things, but we're, we're, there's more dis, more extinctions, mammal extinctions in Australia than anywhere else in the world. You know, the koalas are now endangered species because we just clear all the forests. Mm -hmm. It's just terrible. And I think that we can't be happy if the environment is unhappy. And that's why Patrick is spending so much time with Lewis planting trees. Although, as we know, there's another reason, isn't there, why they're planting trees? Um to make the landscape happy so in time we can be happy as well. Well, this was all just so beautiful. I mean, I feel that, Nigel, I've learned about your naturalist passion, your writerly, how it all mixes together. The queer themes, the like memoirist elements with you talking openly about your struggle with your mom, but also feeling connected to her. I just really appreciate your vulnerability and openness here on the podcast. So, you know, thank you so much. I am so excited to know you and just happy everyone out there can hear this really 
behind the scenes, letting that guard down of what it means when you are a novelist, like how you arrive to the page. Well, thank you, Andrew, for saying that. And thank you for just asking such open, but um, such thoughtful questions and and for creating a space where not only me, but other queer writers can actually talk about this process. It's, it's incredibly rare. In fact, I don't think that I've ever had in my 30 years, I've ever had a purely sort of queer space literary conversation to this degree. So thank you for the opportunity. It's an absolute pleasure. Oh, well, that means a lot. Thank you. I'm, you know, um, if you build it, they come. I believe in that <laughs> dictum. Uh, and, so, and isn't it wonderful that it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, you're, you're in the US, and and so it's an international experience. And so maybe this is this is the era we're in, where the queer, queer community internationally is reaching out to each other. To, and I know that there's so many um, challenges where, where you are, which is um, very concerning. Yes. Well, I was going to say we have a lot of fossil fuel issues here uh, with pipeline projects. So uh, especially the Willow project. Mm. Right, right. We, so we're just not, you know, yeah. We're just there's, not getting this sort of right, are we? So um, yes, no, but, no, but Jane Fonda is calling the alarm and, um, you know, we have Greta Thunberg and um, even I had Marianne Williamson on the podcast. She's bringing up issues. There's, there's a community and there's a lot of climate, um, Gen Z protesters in the New York Northeast area who are interrupting bougie restaurants. So I think we're in that moment where you have to call attention and um, right. Some could disagree what's happening in London with what are they called? The oil. Um, they're like holding up traffic. Oh yeah, the, the ex protests. extinction rebellion folk, and 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 I think you know I went to a, a, a climate change protest here in Canberra a couple of years ago, and our prime minister, very conservative prime minister at the time, sort of said, you know, young people should be in school; they shouldn't be protesting. And it was inspired by Greta Thunberg, and um, there was maybe I don't know fifty thousand school kids, few with their parents, but they're they're with their placards, and they're in this massive park, and they're all shouting, "We should do something." And when I went down there, and I thought. That's exactly what young folks should be doing. They should be saying, we deserve better and we will we will fight for this. We will make well, this happen. This is their future. I mean, like, we could get into this on another podcast. But <laughs> yes. um, again, with your, maybe with your next work, when you come back, we'll talk more about, I do think though, 2023 has really been a year already of a mass shift in consciousness of, empathy like people who will realize we're all part of a community like right you're in australia i'm in america but we're realizing that we are all connected like um the oceans do not care what geographic boundary you're in like if they're going to start to flood um we're all affected it's not but there's no discrepancy no and, and i understand stand that with the Great Barrier Reef, which as you probably know is under a huge threat from um, rising in um, rising uh, temperatures, 
water temperatures, but also pollution from farms. But 90% of the world's fisheries actually have a connection to the Great Barrier Reef. So people could say, oh, well, it's just a pretty thing. Do we need pretty pretty coral? But but 90% of the world's fisheries. But I was also sort of thinking, you know, maybe that, and I know we need to finish up, but that, that connect, that overlap, the intersection between queer thinking and environmentalism has made me think that in Australia, the most prominent environmentalists of the last 50 years certainly most of my life is a man called bob brown um who has been in in politics for a lot of his life and he's now a, a senior very senior man and he's he's a former you know doctor and he's been an out gay man his whole life so that is a really in interesting intersection isn't there between sort of queer activism perhaps and environmentalism and that would be a great discussion to have yeah no we'll have to have it in a more extended way because even um, the way that we interact as queer men or like queer male spaces. I talk so much about Fire Island or the ocean community. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and right. You could see it even in Miami, Los Angeles, San Francisco. Um, right. I know in Sydney, I'm sure definitely there's a beachy area. That's like the queer male resort. Um, yep. but I'm um, like the way that we interact with our bodies in water and like how arousing that is, right? You're kind of back to right with your cock. Um, but I mean, it reminds me of Tom Cruise when I had him on who wrote The New Life with the John Addington Simmons fictional right. account. And there's a moment where Simmons is reading Whitman and has this interpretation that poem was Whitman's word for a man's cock. And I'm thinking, though, the how much I go into the ocean, I've even seen... I'm thinking, wait, there used to be jellyfish when I was a child. Where mm. are the jellyfish? Mm. And I'm like, that's interesting. What happened? Or even fish. I used to see fish swimming in the ocean. I didn't see, I've no, I haven't seen any fish in the ocean since I've been swimming this summer. And I'm in the water all the time. So something's happening. Like, it's not just a coincidence. It's not like, oh, the fish are gone. That. It's connected. I mean, you've talked about the bar Great Barrier Reef. There's the their ecosystems are not sustaining their lives. And and if and and if I can point, there was a really important part uh, in the process of writing my husband's little thing because I I read a, a an article and it's called The Opposite of Glamour uh, by an Australian novelist and academic um, called. Um, I know she's just gone out of my head, and that's really embarrassing because she's a. No, friend. it's okay. Wait, what is it called? It's called the opposite of glamour. Okay, I'll find it as and you're it, talking. And it, thank you, and I just so you can um, save my little senior moment there, and <laughs> um, and it's published in the Sydney Review of Books, and it won a major uh, uh, journalism prize, the major journalism prize in Australia, and um, Delia Falconer. There you go. Okay, you got it. Yes, yes, yes. A new essay by Delia Falconer. Okay, yeah, I found the it. And I th that's exactly what she's talking about. She's talking about when she grew up in Sydney, you know, there, there was a massive bat, co bat colony in Sydney that you never, and she loved it as a child. They're now no longer, like the sky would almost literally go black in the evenings. I remember it too, because there were so many bats. There are now no more bats. <laughs>
Or have you been moved by an LGBT book, film, painting, television show, or other form of media? Then the Gay and Lesbian Review wants to hear from you. The GNLR believes in bringing awareness to queer art and artists through reviews, commentary, and thought pieces in which the author relates their personal lives to a particular piece of art, a novel, a movie, in addition to the print magazine, the GNLR also publishes articles on its blog. So you can see all of this on glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org. Remember, you get 50% off your subscription of the GL Review magazine when you use the promo code ITBR50. That's 50% off your print or digital subscription when you use promo code ITBR50. To learn more about submitting an article for the GNLR, visit their writer's guidelines. The link is located at the bottom of their homepage. And if you have any questions, email Stephen Hemrick. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N dot H-E-M-R-I-C-K at glreview.org. The GNLR and its readers can't wait to see what you have to say. Hey, Ivory Tower Boiler Room listeners and true crime friends. You've heard me gush over this incredible woman and her beautiful products. I'm talking about Mandy Made It. Mandy makes customized and original crochet and cut goods. They are the perfect, unique, one-of-a-kind gift for literally anyone in your life. And she makes incredible home decor. I still have my pumpkins that I put out every fall. I just love them. Check her out on Instagram at M-A-N-D-E-E Made It or search Mandy Made It on Facebook. To order, just slide into her DMs. And if you mention the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, you will receive a free personalized gift with your first order. So go on Instagram and look up at Mandy Made It and Mandy is spelled M-A-N-D-E-E. Again, her handle is at Mandy Made It. Mandy spelled M-A-N-D-E-E. And order today. And she talks about how do we have these moments of delight, like you're talking about being a, a kid and swimming and seeing fish. What does that actually mean? And so she's talking about that means the opposite of glamour. We're going into this era where there will be none of these things. You know, my Tim and I went for a bushwalk last Saturday. We saw a, a beautiful hawk. But then when climate change activists talk about, the best way to think about this is that um, by the end of our lives, what we see now, there'll be half of it left by the end of our lives. So, you know, even if you just see a couple of fish tomorrow, by the end of your lives, you won't see any fish. But what does that mean for us as human beings when we don't have those little moments of delight? When you look down the water, you might be having this lovely time enjoying your body or whatever in the sun, and then you see little fish dart along. What does that mean if we're never going to see that again? And that's another sort of driver of my heart is a little wild thing because there is an animal that Patrick sees, but he gets only glimpses out of it, at it and it disappears. And that's when he has sort of problems. So, um, but yes, we could talk. No, but it's like the beauty so of, um, do you have, like when I was a child, I recently, when I went back to my parents, um, we went over to the neighbor's house and there was a um, 
lightning bug bug and there used to always be lightning bugs but it was like a rare moment because um i haven't seen a lightning bug in i don't know a long time so but you're right it brings up nostalgia and i think it's it sort of goes i think sort of beyond australia and, and sydney so it's like the Canberra has the Australian Parliament House and for millennia, because Indigenous folk have been doing this for, you know, 100,000 years, there was this thing called a bogong moth and it would actually come down from the north and they're these big black moths and then they'd go down to the snowy mountains where they would breed in caves. Um, but and then, and then, you know, 35 years ago, Australia built its Parliament House on the bogong path and it was it was always hilarious because the walls would become the windows would become black with these bogong moths because they're flying into them because they're trying to you know, migrate to the south that never happens anymore that's in the mm. space of 35 years and when scientists have gone into those caves to try to find them where before you know it would just be the cave would be black with these moths there there might be now one moth trying to find a mate so I, I think it, it is talking about our past, but it's also talking about our future. And but also what does that mean just as us of humans, where we, you know, I write about this in my heart is a wild thing, is an example of using memoir. I was mowing the lawn as a kid, and we lived next to this patch of bush, bushland, and this little sugar glider, which is only about the size of your hand. And he's he's like oh, a little wow. possum, but he but he can glide, he can glide from tree to tree. And, and you see them, they just point out their little wings and then they glide. The only time I ever saw it was when I was a little kid, mowing the lawn, probably being grumpy because I had to mow the lawn. And then this sugar glider just, this is like very rare. Only time ever in my life, as I said, and he flew out and he landed on the wheelbarrow, on the, on the um, lawnmower's handlebars. And he was just sitting there staring at me. Hmm. And so I thought, well, I'd better pick him up and put him back on the tree. And, of course, they're, they're only tiny and they're very cute. Um, better than he bit into my hand. And then, of course, I got really upset because I was trying to help this little animal. Okay. But that would never happen. That's the only time it's ever happened in my life. And that would never happen anymore. But so I think there is that. Isn't that now we're talking about this intersection but sort of queer thinking and environment and activism and, you know. But being self-aware, I mean, we have so many... I have so many deer in the area right? and right. Um, you know, this is going to sound naive, but do you have deer in Australia? They're, they're, um, they're a pest, but we have a lot of kangaroos. Wow. So we could go for a walk 200 meters from here and would see a lot of kangaroos. Yeah. I like to watch um, TikTok videos of kangaroos getting close to people. And I've seen kangaroos, they would not be a good household pet. Um, no, they, would, they are they would, fighters. They'll they uh, punch you up. Yeah, <laughs> they'll punch you. No, um, yeah. but the deer are very peaceful usually, um, unless they're protecting, of course, which makes sense. The babies, but they're now like coming face to face sometimes. Um, on Fire mm. Island, I was face to face with the deer, but to be that. I think now, though, our job is to be aware and interact with the animals to let them be in their habitat, to like um, give them peace, like to give them um, tranquility in a way, to not yeah, yes. be, to not be a threatening presence or try to think that we're going to um, harm them. Because I really do think that kind of energy 
permeates. So there is, you're right, there's an animal human connection. And we now have to be more cognizant of how we're interacting with the animal community. Yeah. And also I love that idea of that sort of that peace to give each other peace. And and perhaps that's that's what we we need in in the world to to have that sort of respect between human communities, but also between right. human and non-human communities. And um so perhaps there are some benefits about about you know at this point in time that we've we've got to um so you know whether we're hopeful or not hopeful I I, I I'm not sure, but you know in the space of this conversation, Australia's probably cleared another couple of, you know, sports ovals worth of old growth forests. So, you know. Oh, no. But I agree Australia. with you. Boundaries are, it's not just for animals and humans, but for humans too. Like something I'm being very cognizant of now is we all deserve our boundary. Like we all deserve to be aware of each other and act in empathy and kindness to people and not be um to not be entitled or um because i think that's the fight right now to not just be in it for ourselves or think we're the only person who matters in this narcissistic loop and perhaps that's where we're getting to andrew isn't it well, you know to, for, for for us as as gay gay people we've just wanted to exist we wanted to exist in the most um fully way that we can and i think that we want to let you know whether it's deer or kangaroo or koala or a little sugar glider we 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 want that to exist too and and maybe that's why there is this connection between and maybe that's for bob brown and he bob brown is from tasmania which is up until 1997 it, it was still it was still illegal to be gay and they would be protests very peaceful protests might be just 10 gay men who would just hold a placard up a placard up in front of the tasmanian um parliament and they would be arrested um and now australia um, tasmania has some of the most progressive gay laws thankfully because of a guy called rodney croom who's about 10 years older than me who is a tasmanian who said this is just not acceptable um so i i think that we've just wanted to exist fully and i think that we want whether it's yeah a deer to exist fully and to exist peacefully yeah and to stand to know that we're entitled to not be self like not to be um narcissistic but to know that we have a voice and we deserve our agency and that we're not going to shrink ourselves like that's something i'm really working on now is not yeah. to say sorry yeah. to people when i'm just embodying the presence of who i am in my identity like no you're going to respect my boundaries and who i am like I'm not going uh, to try to be quiet around you. Yeah, exactly. And then we're so used to it. And obviously, you know, the, you know, one of the other genders, the major other agenda, agenda, you know, the, the female of the species have been shrinking themselves for for so long. And maybe that's why it's a lot of gay men have, you know, love, you know, whether it's Kylie Minogue or, you know, whether it's Jane Fonda, where we love these people who, particularly women who've gone, I will not shrink myself. I will be Kylie Minogue. I will do what I need to do. I will be Jane Fonda. I will be Susan Sarandon. And do not ever try to shrink me because maybe we know, you know, and, and in Australia, there'd be still communities where you would be wise to sh shrink yourself as a, as a gay man. But I'm sure any female listeners to this would be going, Nigel Andrew, we do this every hour we step out. Oh, of yes. House. Yes. No, of course. I mean, but, you're right. Um, yeah. 
well, I think that's why there's the iconic female disco singers and their gay fans. Like the women who've spoken up, even a Judy Garland, like why there's this history. So yeah, we have so much more to talk about eventually, but you're right, there's something to this. And a shout out to Nina Simone, who would be my touchstone artist. And, and of course, she was one for famously saying, you will never shrink me in any possible way. And I will destroy you if you get in my way. So patron saint of artist Nina Simone, we salute you. Yes, yes. And on that note, oh, Nigel, where can everyone um, follow you, like on social media? So um, I'm on on, on uh, Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Uh, Facebook is my name on Twitter and Instagram is NG Feathers or one word. And I'm always, I don't actually use social media that much, but I'm also, I've got a website, nigelfeatherstone.com.au. And um, I love hearing from people. So even if you listen to this and you think, I'd love to drop Nigel a line, please do. I love it. You'll make my day as you've just done, Andrew. Oh, good. Well, so nigelfeatherstone.com.au right that's right um and get your hands on my heart is a little wild thing and bodies of men uh so thank you nigel and this has been wonderful um so happy to know you and we'll be back likewise somehow in this community again i know that i'm starting to rewatch um queer as folk and iconic like well i have to say iconic in my opinion american queer tv but you know, if you're, we'll reach out. Eventually, maybe I'll have you on to recap one of the Queerest Folk shows. So um, I've watched I watched the whole Queerest Folk, the American version, loved it. And and a shout out to Christos Chorgas's movie Head On. Um, it's oh. it's one it's one of the most you'll probably find it on YouTube or some streaming service. Uh, I think Andrew, you'd be very interested. So uh, and it's got perhaps one of the most. Um, interesting opening scenes you're ever going to watch so um okay well now i'm going to be looking it up (laughs) because that sounds (laughs) tantalizing okay well thank you nigel this has been wonderful and thanks Thanks to the audience out there um okay thank you bye everyone bye nigel (laughs) see you Hi, this is Dr. Andrew Rimby. I want to thank you so much for listening to the ITBR and TCIA episodes. Make sure if you don't, follow, rate, and review us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Also, make sure you follow ITBR on TikTok and Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room and TCIA on TikTok and Instagram at True Crime and Academia. Also, we have a brand new Patreon membership system. So I just want to explain it to you all quickly. So if you want to become an ITBR student, it is $5 a month. You get ad-free ITBR and TCIA episodes and video interviews. If you want to become an ITBR professor for $10 a month, you get all of those ad-free benefits, but you also get access to both the ITBR and TCIA book clubs. You can join both book clubs, get ad-free episodes, plus you're going to get all of our extra video episodes. So I am re-watching Queer as Folk. Christian Garcia from That Old Gay Classic Cinema is joining us, and he's re-watching Smash. Um, Mary is going to start to re-watch shows as well. You even get access to what I'm calling the ITBR teaches. So if I'm recapping a movie or a TV show, including Barbie, 
um, Halloween movies and horror films, you get access to that as well. And then I also am offering consultation services. So for $30, you get your first initial consultation with me. It's a one hour private Zoom. I will help create a, your podcast, your media brand. How do you navigate academia as an undergrad or a grad student? Do you need help with technology? It could be teaching tools, Spotify for podcasters, video editor so software. Do you want to expand your social media presence as an artist, writer, podcaster, or academic? Do you want help on how to create a public humanities identity like I've created for myself? So I now am offering that consultation service. You can find more info about it on Patreon. And you also can join our book clubs. If you want to just join the ITBR book club or the TCIA book club, you can do that for $4 a month. Patreon.com backslash Ivory Tower Boiler Room. That is P A T R E O N.com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Thanks to the team, Mary DePippi, our chief contributor. And thank you to our two new interns from Stony Brook University, Jonathan and Sarah. Bye, everyone. Until next time. <laughs>